long history. How Manila became Spanish. Part 2. Muskets versus poisoned arrows. On the way to Luzon. Hello everyone and welcome to the second part of How Manila Became Spanish, which goes back to the 1570s in the Philippines and looks at the very earliest days of the Spanish colony. As was said in the previous episode, this is the third document looking at these early days of the Spanish in the Philippines. The first document was called The Voyage to Colonize the Philippines and the second document was called The Philippines' First Spanish Colony. That document ended in 1567 and this one picks up the story in 1570 when the Spanish have moved from their first base in Cebu to an island called Panay. But they're still looking for a long-term base for their colony in the Philippines. In the previous episode, the Spanish were wandering from island to island, exploring the area and trying to make agreements with the local people. However, such agreements often involved the use of violence. As the last episode ended, there was something of a standoff in a stronghold on the island of Mindoro, which is just one step away from Luzon. We left some Spanish, facing some of the Moros as they call them, in a fort high on a hill. And just a note before we begin, don't forget to subscribe to be informed of the remaining episodes in this series. There are another three episodes in this document and then another five episode series about another document which follows on from this one. And just a note about terminology in this episode. We've called it muskets versus poisoned arrows, but the muskets are actually in this document called arquebuses. I just use the word muskets because it's a term more commonly known. So here we go with how Manila became Spanish. Part 2. Muskets versus Poisoned Arrows on the way to Luzon. The master of camp arrived with his ship, ahead of the oared prows. When the first prow arrived, he embarked in it with the chief notary, Hernando Riquel, the interpreter, and a recently converted Moro, who served as guide. With only these men, and one soldier armed with a shield, the master of camp advanced towards the Moro fort. He reached the foot of the hill, without allowing any others to follow him, and, being unable to proceed any further on account of its steepness, he summoned from above two Moros to treat for peace. There seemed to be a difference of opinion among the Moros, as was gathered from their demeanour, for some made gestures of war and others of peace some of them even going so far as to throw a few stones and level the culverins. On the whole, they were not very anxious to fight. Meanwhile, the master of camp was so near them that they could have spit on him. All the Spaniards had already disembarked and stood as an arquebus shot from the master of camp. The latter was so anxious to win over those morrows and gain their confidence, because they exhibited fear, that he wished to climb the hill on all fours to reach them, but his companions dissuaded him from this. At this time, Captain Juan de Salcedo, the sergeant major, the high constable and the ensign major came up, and the master of camp, the captain and the officials were assembled there, with but one soldier, for the master of camp would not allow the others to advance. The Moros, having seen the peaceful attitude of our people, one of them descended the hill, almost on all fours. Our Moro guide advanced toward him, but, on account of the great steepness of the hill, he had to be helped up by the other Moro. After they had seen and recognised each other, 
and after the customary embrace and kiss, they descended to the master of camp. The latter told the morrow who had come down, through the interpreter, that he need not fear, for he had not come to harm them, but to seek their friendship. The morrow carried the message to the others upon the hill, and a chief came down, and, upon reaching the master of camp, said that he and all the town wished to be his friends, and to help the Spaniards with whatever they possessed. The master of camp answered that the proposition was acceptable, whereupon the morrow chief asked him to withdraw from that place, saying that after they had withdrawn, he would come to treat of friendship and of what was to be given. The master of camp, in order to please him, agreed to this, and told the chief that he was going to review his men, and that he should not be offended when they should hear arquebus shots and the noise of artillery. Accordingly, he withdrew to the place where his men were drawn up in order, and there a fine review took place, the company closing ranks in such perfect order that both the friendly Indians, who came with us, the number of five or six hundred, and the Moros, were greatly frightened. The master of camp ordered that the cannon and midship on the large vessel be fired, although not to increase their fright. The review had not yet ended when a morrow came with sixty gold tiles, which he gave to the master of camp, asking him not to be offended if the gift were not brought quickly, because the people had dispersed through fear, and therefore it could not be collected so soon but he promised that they would raise the amount of four hundred tiles. The master of camp received this gold and had it placed in a small box, the key of which he gave to the morrow, telling him to keep it until the promise was fulfilled, but to consider that after treason nothing could be more blameworthy than falsehood. The morrow salamed low and said that he would not lie and that they would fulfil their promise little by little. And so they did, on that same day, four more messengers came with gold, and all entreated and begged the master of camp not to be offended at the delay, if there should be any. With these flatteries and promises, the Moros detained us about five days, during which time we had friendly dealings and intercourse with them, although they mistrusted us to a certain extent. They had already abandoned the first town on the shore and had withdrawn to a hill about two hundred paces away. There most of them had taken their wives, children and part of their goods, although the best part of their property was kept farther inland. This hill was so well fortified by nature that, had it not been for the two ladders which the Moros kept in two places, one could have ascended it only with wings. Notwithstanding all these difficulties, our Spaniards paid them friendly visits. On this little fortified spot, the Moros had built their huts as high as Mexican market tents. They resembled a crowd of children with their holiday toys. During these five days, the Moros had, little by little, given two hundred tiles of impure gold, for they possessed great skill in mixing it with other metals. They give it an outside appearance so natural and perfect, and so fine a ring, that unless it is melted they can deceive all men, even the best of silversmiths. While in this port of Mindoro the master of camp sought information concerning the distance to Manila, and the towns which would be found on the journey. 
our interpreter disagreed with the morrows of Mindoro as to the number of days it would take, but they all agreed that it was far, and that perhaps the weather would not permit us to sail thither. The natives of Mindoro added also that the Spaniards were crazy to go to Manila with so small a force, and that they pitied us. They recounted so many wonders of Manila that their tale seemed fabulous. They said that there were very large oared boats, each carrying three hundred rowers, besides the warriors, that the people were well armed and excellent bowmen, that the ships were well equipped with artillery, both large and small, and that any one of those vessels could attack two prows and sink them when within range. With these accounts, the Moros tried to discourage the Spaniards, but the more they attempted to frighten them with such things, the more desirous they all became to set foot in Manila. In view of this, the master of camp did not wait for the full payment of what the Moros had promised, but, warning them to have the remainder ready upon his return, he left them on friendly terms and set out for the town of Manila with all his men. He left the port of Mindoro at midnight, and the next morning cast anchor before a small island lying between Mindoro and Luzon, where he remained two days waiting for the prows. Meanwhile, having sufficient leisure, he crossed over to the shore of Luzon, which was about two leagues distant, and discovered in that same island a wide, spacious bay. The prows went forward, in company with one of the moros belonging to the town of Palayan, who had offered their friendship. These moros pointed out to Captain Juan de Salcedo, who went with the oared prows, the mouth of a river which led inland to a lake called Bombon. All the prows entered this river and came upon an uninhabited town. After the moro guides from Balayan had gathered all the house commodities that they could store in their prow, they told the Spaniards that they wished to warn their own village, so that their people should not be anxious and so they went away, leaving the Spaniards in that river. The master of camp took a different route with his junk, and cast anchor before the town of Balayan, two leagues from the river of Bonbon. While anchored there, and while the master of camp was fretting over the non-appearance of the prows that sailed with him, since now it was already two hours after nightfall, at that very time one of them, under command of Captain Juan de Salcedo, made its appearance. He had been wounded in the leg by a poisoned arrow. Soon afterwards, the other prows and vessels which had sailed in his company arrived. They reported to the master of camp that they had entered a narrow arm of the sea, which the land inwards formed into a medium-sized lake, around which seemed to be many people and much cultivated land. The country seemed thickly populated and well tilled. Captain Juan de Salcedo advanced farther up those waters in search of a fortified place of which information had been received on the way thither, situated on both sides of the water, and thus very high and rugged, and suitable for laying ambuscades. This proved to be true, for suddenly, without them being able to see anyone, many arrows came flying through the air, one of which wounded Captain Juan de Salcedo in the leg, and many more would have been wounded had not the prow been supplied with canvas guards. The arquebusiers immediately hastened to their posts with their medicine and prevented the Moros from discharging another volley of arrows, which ceased at their coming. The captain secured an antidotal herb for his wound and, 
seeing that the approach to the fort was too dangerous and that it was impossible to effect a landing, he went back to collect his prows and to look for a shore where he could easily disembark. A landing place was found near the town. The men disembarked and set out on foot in search of the morrows. The latter appeared in a broad plain, covered with grass about a handspan high. The men were divided into two troops in order to attack the morrows, who were shooting arrows as rapidly as they could and wildly shouting. The morrows waited until the Spaniards began to hit their flanks with arquebus bullets, and then, seeing the rage of their opponents, they took to flight. Our men pursued them to the very gate of their town, where more than 40 morrows fell under the fire from their arquebuses. So the Spanish are one step closer to Manila. They've made it to the island of Luzon and are exploring, but things haven't gone very well. Captain Juan de Salcedo has been injured in his leg, and it's his story that ends this episode, where he tells of the battle between the Spanish and the morrows of the area. In the next episode, Captain Juan de Salcedo finishes off his account, and then the Spanish decide to head straight to Manila. Will the Spanish be welcomed when they arrive? Thank you everyone for listening to the latest episode of Long History. I hope you've enjoyed the drama of the 1570s in the Philippines. Don't forget to give it a like before you move on. And don't forget that there is a backstory to this document, which here on Long History we've covered in The Journey to Colonize the Philippines, and another document, The Philippines' First Spanish Colony. Thanks again for listening everyone. This was How Manila Became Spanish, Part 2. Muskets versus poisoned arrows on the way to Luzon. Goodbye.